Hi there, welcome to another episode of Stardust MQ, I'm Cameron Furlong. My guest today is Dr. Chris Muller. He's a critical theorist from Macquarie University who looks at the ways that technology has shaped human culture and thinking and how our, the ways of thinking has shaped technology. It's very broad, it's very interesting, and I had the opportunity to sit down with Chris to have a chat about his work and what it all means. How has technology shaped us in ways that I found very surprising? Okay, my name is Chris Müller. I'm a lecturer in cultural studies, or I should say senior lecturer in cultural studies and media at Macquarie University. Now, what do I do? That's a really good question. <laughs> <laughs> so by training, I'm a, I'm a critical theorist, um, which is an ironic title because a lot of things I do is try to understand things that are entirely practical. So emotions, the way we interact with machines and how we can talk about that. So that's my research. And the theory part is often about how we frame our own agency in response to that. Okay. Um, this, your, your career is just so broad and the what you do is so... Is so it, it's so vast. I I sort of struggled to to think find a place to start because I want to talk about everything. Um, let's start with critical a critical theorist. What kind of works have you thought about as a critical theorist in your in your training and and then in further into your research? So, <laughs> my work starts at an interesting point. I think I got embarrassed by that question. <laughs> <laughs> Because theory sounds so grand and so grandiose, and often it's kind of the end of a conversation when you mention, oh, I'm a theorist, not the beginning of one, that I got very interested in that feeling of embarrassment itself, which has um, a really important role to play as we interact with people. And it's very hard to define what feelings such as shame, embarrassment, um, scruple, all these kind of feelings that are very immediate, what they actually are. So I got interested first into the kind of psychoanalytic attempts to frame those emotions, then into the kind of biology of it all. And I realized that mediation, so cultural mediation, cultural norms and values played a big role, and also technological objects played a big role. So that was the kind of beginning of my rabbit hole, <laughs> I guess, that I went down. And as these feelings are literally everywhere, uh, my work turned out to be quite broad <laughs> because I kind of went, went after that. And then you sort of took a dive at the moment into technology and, and its place in a, in a sort of a cultural environment in, in, in terms of how we interact with each other. Where did that path come from? That emerged mainly through me discovering the writings of a very curious German thinker called Günther Anders, who wrote in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, mainly. And he had this very curious way of writing about everyday situations. And he diagnosed what he called Promethean shame. So the feeling of embarrassment in view of the humiliatingly high quality of technological objects. It's quite a mouthful. Um, 
it was, I recognized in the writings of, of, of Gunther Anders a feeling that I knew from my everyday life. Um, so the feeling that, for instance, my GPS was accusing me of not being very good at navigating, or my word processor of kind of giving me, mirroring back at me that I'm not very good at spelling, that I've got all these errors. And those kind of moments when suddenly technology is experienced in a in a new way, in a way where we kind of feel to fall out of sync or we become aware of the kind of encounter with a machine in a way that we often aren't, right, when we're absorbed by it. And then I encountered in the work of Gunther Anders uh, a thinker who tried to suggest or he suggested hey this is a really significant thing <laughs> something is happening to us and to our bodies in the course of the 20th century we're suddenly our lives are suddenly filled with these machines with these objects that have a movement of their own and that kind of our organisms somehow perceive as if they were living beings and we're kind of very bad at recognizing this we we kind of want to call Siri a she or Alexa a she, even though it's an it. So that kind of effect. And that has all sorts of ramifications that I'm interested in. What kind of ramifications are they? Well, the moment we perceive technological objects as independent entities or as distinct entities, we begin to think of them perhaps, or at least this is perhaps one way of viewing it, no longer as human products. And we attribute to them moral agency and, and kind of qualities that obscure us to the way they work and the, the constellations of power they create. So what would be a good example of that? So a good example would be something like a language recognition algorithm that enables us to interact with, with say a chatbot or something like that. Now, when we're interacting with that system, we're in fact interacting with a vast data set that is produced by humans. We're interacting with all sorts of protocols that people have written and they can be programmed in lots of different ways. But the moment we start interacting, we're very blind to all that complexity and we behave as if the chatbot was just this kind of independent entity. But that's a, an observation um, I think we can make that we forget or we, we're shielded from the complexity of our technological environment. And that also means we're shielded from a whole set of decisions and ethical questions that are part of creating these objects and, and processes. I hope that makes sense. <laughs> is, is, <laughs> this may seem like a slightly more benign question. Is, is that kind of a similar, a similar vein as people like naming their cars and, and having this sort of strange interpersonal relationship with an, with an, uh, with an inanimate object? Well, absolutely, right? Because those kind of processes signal precisely that on some level, we behave as if these aren't just inanimate objects. And we prefer to see our car as an entity of its own, as a 
you know, as a Bruce or Jack or Daisy or whatever you call your car, <laughs> rather than seeing it as, you know, a human product that was produced out of hundreds of components that could be produced in hundreds of different ways, right? Once we have the attachment, we just, we take it as a given. Why do we do that? It's so, it seems so bizarre. It, like, it, logically, we can, we can see that all these things are inanimate and they're made artificially. And yet we still insist on personifying them in, in ways that, that doesn't really, we don't really benefit anything from it, do we? Or do we? I think we benefit a great deal. <laughs> um, now, I have no, you know, kind of hard scientific answer to that. Um, for me, the, the school of thought I'm interested in looks at deep evolutionary processes. Um, it's a reminder that we like to treat uh, technology as a very recent invention, human invention. And when I say the word technology, people think of computers and that kind of thing. But the oldest technological artifacts are about 3 million years old. Um, so, and I think the species Homo sapiens and all the paleoanthropologists will forgive me if I make a mistake, are a few hundred thousand years old. So technological artifacts pre-exist uh, hominization, right? So it's this deep interaction between the organism or a biological organism from which humans evolve and technological implements that give us our physiology. So think of our free hands that have evolved to be capable of manipulating tools. Think of, you know, our, our anatomy, our, our faces are flat and we can speak, we have an upright stance. So that's a process, a million year, uh, three, three, four million year old process through which we have adapted to be able to use technological artifacts in ways that other animal life currently doesn't, or not that we're aware of. So that means we have this evolved ability to forget ourselves to technological objects. So even, even now I'm experiencing myself as speaking to you, right? But it's in a sense, the language that has a history of its own that enables me to do that. But my body can just use that kind of pre-existing, um, you know, system of words, grammar and so forth and use it and we can just speak with each other the same way with a hammer, like you can pick it up and use it without kind of having to think, right? So we have this ability to completely forget ourselves to processes and to then perhaps also as a consequence, fetishize certain objects that, you know, kind of encapsulate certain abilities. So it's not a, it's not a rigorous scientific answer. This is not how I would perhaps talk about it in a paper, but um, as a kind of a story, as a kind of a way of thinking about what technology is, I find it quite a, a evocative and suggestive way of looking at technology. Do you think that proto-humans did the same thing with their spears and their clubs? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> well, I guess what, I mean, 
looking back at proto-humans is quite interesting. So there's a bunch of uh, French philosophers mainly who, who worked in, you know, the last 30, 40 years, who remind us that the evolution, technological evolution took millions of years <laughs> until it reached what we might call the prehistoric age. And in that time, the technological environment changed very slowly. So if you were born into a world of, of spears, it's very unlikely that you ever saw a different technology. You just had spears throughout your life. And the same if you were born you know, in the in the Middle Ages, you would have seen, or European, what in Europe is called the Middle Ages. I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm from a European background, so this is how I see time. Um, even there, there would have been a lot of change and there would have been a lot of development, but there wouldn't necessarily have been fundamental change. And And then, you know, with the beginning of the industrial revolution and mechanization, technology begins to change very, very quickly. And that means that in a sense, we as organisms, as societies, as cultures, we're still organized in accordance to previous or earlier technological systems. And we treat, you know, we treat them, we treat a smartphone as a, as almost kind of the same thing as a sword or something like that, because all our moral and political frameworks seem to date back a few hundred years to a time that precedes autonomous objects. But of course, today, that's a bit, um, well, today we're at the limit of, of, of those ways of thinking, I think. Mm. We're struggling. We're struggling to kind of define who is responsible when a computer does something, you know, or something like that. And that's gonna, gonna that will just get more complicated as technology gets more advanced, especially now with I suppose with artificial intelligence becoming more closer to a human brain, I suppose you could if I dare say. Um is that something that might in the future might have a negative impact on our on our on our cultural way of being? I think yeah, I'm I think it's a really exciting time to be to be uh, studying and to be thinking about technology. And I guess the way of thinking I'm interested in precisely starts to question some of these ideas of, you know, can we really locate human intelligence simply as easily as we think? Because, you know, in the example I used earlier, I'm speaking with you now because there is such a thing as language and that is you know um, and our organisms have the capacity to use that so even though yes there needs to be some sort of human to speak it's not a it's also a product of, of language right and it's also a product of in this instance our conversation is a product of the technology that is that is uh, recording and conveying and, and framing our conversation and making me feel of itself aware all those kind of things so um if you're if you're ready for a big word um and Catherine Hell's a, a theorist in the area I work in she calls this a cognitive assemblage right she's saying well when humans work with computers 
the thinking is done not just by the human and not just by the artificial intelligence engine, but also by the wires that make the computer work, by all these processes that somehow shape the outcome, right? So, so if there's a glitch on the line or something like that and we adjust our behavior, it, it's hard to call that thinking, right? But what is happening is some sort of, it, it, it develops meaning and brings something into the world. So and I think a lot of the, as I said, a lot of the challenges will be to kind of think, well, the more we somehow create systems that that mediate intelligence, that kind of, that work as a system to generate meaning. You know, the example of whenever we work with a big data set, we're actually using data from, from thousands or millions of people and, and sources. How do we start accounting for that and legislating that? Because we like to think of responsibility, especially in the West, and especially the kind of enlightenment tradition of thought is something that we are as individuals, right? Or that we kind of like to track back to, to certain phenomena, such as, you know, the guilty conscience that you experience or something like that. And those ways of thinking aren't very suitable, I guess, to, to thinking about complex technological processes. Hmm. All right. Um, what are you working on at the moment? So we've, we've talked a lot about technology. Is it still in that same same vein or are you, are you working <laughs> yeah. on something else? So at the moment I'm working on, I always like to work on somewhat quirky phenomena on some like, you need, as you said, it's like such a complex, such a big field or big question. You need some kind of concrete access point. So at the moment I'm actually interested in in laughter <laughs> and specifically in laughter that is generated as we interact with machines. Um, a good example, I mean, it was all prompted through our eternal kind of dependence on Zoom over the last few years because I realized that I needed to laugh whenever I was like, you know, I was either laughing internally when I, at the absurdity of some of the situations or I needed to kind of compensate for, you know, I forgot to unmute or I, I kind of the screen share went, went terribly wrong. And those feelings that would build up, I needed to laugh about them afterwards. And I need to kind of exchange anecdotes with, with colleagues and students and friends. And again, I think this is something completely mundane and hopefully recognizable to people, but there's also a real politics in that. Um, so if you think of laughter, laughter helps kind of sanitize a situation so we can kind of use it to completely change the mood of something. And there's a deep history of computing and computer interfaces using that <laughs> to kind of sculpt how we see and perceive a technological process. Now, let me think of an example, a famous example that is often cited in the literature is that when the computer crashes, there's an error message and you have to say, okay. And often that has a little smiley face and you will mimic that automatically and kind of smile. And the very act of smiling will kind of 
prevent you from worrying all too much about your computer crashing and you will think oh everything is okay it's all good and it's also kind of distributing responsibility by making you press okay it somehow gives the user the impression that they did something wrong <laughs> that the computer crashed because of what the user did and not because there was some kind of flaw in the system so these are kind of tricks that are built into into kind of these designs it's like the well, laughter is a form of deflection right <laughs> that's it yeah and what we're deflecting from is often the complexity of technology mm. that that you know the more you start thinking about it the more overwhelming it can feel and of course if you're making technology you don't want people to feel overwhelmed no no definitely not you don't want to be you don't want to be throwing a hundred different messages at them all the time. I suppose that's why graphical user interfaces uh, became more popular than command line interfaces. Uh, it's yeah. just it's just much more much a much nicer experience, I guess. Uh, just going on Zoom and how the current lockdowns have sort of shaped um, our technological use. How do you see it go? How do you see us interacting with technology going forward based off what's happened in the past couple of years? Oh, that's a very difficult question. <laughs> we are, as by we, I mean, as societies, we're, we're tremendously bad at predicting technology. <laughs> I guess perhaps one of the defining things the lockdown has revealed is that it revealed new ways of working to people and new efficiencies or new ways in which you know, probably pre-pandemic pre people, um, I'm just thinking of my own activities. So I'm just thinking of teaching pre-pandemic, I'm sure there would have been resistance to students being taught online from all sorts of sides, including from teachers, students and institutions. Um, of course, there was always online teaching, but I mean, as a kind of a like putting whole programs online. And I'm sure that the pandemic, for instance, revealed that actually not only was there not resistance to it, there was new possibilities to teach, new people who really liked it, that kind of thing. So I think just simply by changing the environment and using technology in a new way, we've normalized certain uses of technology so i think that will continue that those kind of processes will certainly continue but beyond that i i would hesitate to make any predictions i'm afraid <laughs> fair enough i mean you can't you couldn't you could never say right you, you can make all these speculations but you just never know like you couldn't have ex i don't know uh, say in the early 2000s expected there to be touchscreen phones and the way the phones are going they're going to become real sort of small mm. things but then you know what 2010 you get you get the uh you get the smartphone and suddenly the size of the phone matters i don't know i'm just yeah. sort of i'm just sort of using on my own now i've <laughs> no but i mean a lot of my work and that's actually very quite interesting so a lot of my work is about our obsession with the future. We like to ask exactly that quest, question, oh, what will technology be? But that has a few dangerous 
trends or not dangerous. I mean, it's a dangerous, a strong word, but but A, it distracts us from the present. <laughs> we forget to ask what is technology now. And we also forget to ask how did we get here and where do our technologies come from? What, what kind of models are built into it? So one of the, I mean, this is not technically speaking my core research, but it might be an interesting way to think about it. So even the way our computer keyboard is laid out with a command key and a control key and that kind of thing, um, it goes back to the way offices were organized in the 1940s and 50s when there was a controller who would um, kind of instruct. At the time, it was uh, mainly women doing this work. Uh, instruct people to rewire the kind of old computers. So when new computers were developed, that was just translated into an interface or into a way of operating. So, so I think going back into the history of computers, these uh, or history of technology more generally, reveals a lot of the social and political realities from which our technology emerged. And becoming attentive to that possibly also can alert us to blind spots. What are we not seeing in these technologies? What ways of thinking have we, are we just normalizing and naturalizing through the design of our objects when we should perhaps be cautious about that? Okay, that's, uh, that's, that's not, not something I considered. I know a lot of people ask about the future, and I, and I, I do. I just did it, I think, maybe five times in that, in that yeah. interview. Um, but as seeing, thinking about it as a way of distracting from the present and the past is it's a strange thing that, that we do, isn't it? Mm, and it's really old, right? This, this tendency, <laughs> the tendency to look into the future and to say, oh, the future will bring doom and you know, we'll all be replaced by machines. That motif is already around in ancient Greek thought. <laughs> so, so even 2000 years ago, when the word techno from which we have technology was first written down, we have these visions of, oh, we'll all be replaced by machines. So I think that's for me something that is profoundly interesting to kind of say, well, how do we get away from this fascination with the future? Um, and try to kind of see what we're doing in the present. Because in a sense, our images of the future are always an attempt to deal with the present. We live in the present, <laughs> we're shaped by the present. So we can think of those images of the future as something that is not really about the future. Stardust MQ is a podcast made with the support of the Macquarie University Department of Physics and Astronomy and the Macquarie University Physics and Astronomy Society. Thanks to Oliver Doherty for editing this episode. Our intro music is by Poddington Bear and our outro theme is from Ketsa. I'll talk to you next time.